Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Virtual on Relay FM. This episode of Virtual is brought to you by Igloo, an internet you actually like, and lynda.com, where you can instantly stream thousands of courses created by industry experts. For a free trial, visit lynda.com slash virtual. My name is Mike Hurley, and with me as always is Mr. Federico Vitici. Hiya, Federico. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very well. And we have a special guest today. Yeah. Uh, first guest on virtual is Mr. Seth Clifford of Iterate and Nickelfish. Hi, Seth. Hello, guys. How are you? Very well. Thank you so much for being here. We really, really appreciate it. Oh, uh, please. When I, when I thought about doing a show like this, and I've joked about it with people in the past, and then you guys actually wanted to do it, I couldn't possibly pass it up. Because we have a very special topic that we want to talk about today. And we've heard rumors around town that you're the man for the job. <laughs> As I said. Yeah, well, actually, we, he showed us a bunch of photographs over the past few months of his collection. And I got jealous. I got to say, um, I saw the photos of your game collection, Seth, and it was amazing. So when I, when I knew that you had, had this kind of special... Uh, let's say, uh, hobby uh, about what we're talking about today, um, I just wanted to do an episode about that. And um, I'm excited, and uh, and thank you for, for being here. Um, I kind of wish I had your collection, however. And uh, <laughs> I, guess, I guess you're probably safe because you live in another continent. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it'll take you a little while to get here. I can probably yeah. fortify my basement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you're safe, honestly. Yeah, I've been I've been collecting game stuff since I was probably, you know, I got my first stuff when I was very, very young, like maybe five or six. And over the years, I've let things go. And then as I got older, realized I didn't want to do that and kind of scoured eBay for the things that I had. And I've picked up other oddities along the way. So I do have a pretty decent collection that I'm proud of. And I continue to kind of add to it piecemeal here and there as I find stuff I, I missed or want back or just never had and really, really wanted. So you continue to, to, to add to it. You continue to buy things and add to your, your game collection now. Yeah, I do. I go through phases where I, I'll i be really into it and really all over eBay for a couple of weeks, and then I'll cool on it for a few months, and then I'll get fired up again. But I went through, I went through a phase in the in the late spring where I picked up like an Intellivision and like maybe 20 games and some original boxes and the the voice modulator thing that it came with. And I replaced all of my Nintendo handhelds that I had since let go. Like I had the original Game Boy and every single Game Boy through there. But since a lot of them were backwards compatible, I would trade them with friends or get rid of them or sell them to get new stuff. And so recently I picked up I think four different Game Boy units, like the original, the color, the advance, and oh. the S the SP, like all for less than a hundred bucks, you know, together oh. on eBay. So I just since I don't need them immediately, I can be patient and just wait for stuff that I want. And I have some real gems in <laughs> in the collection that I've found in different places and have stories for each one and it's just one of those things where I don't even play them that much anymore I don't really have a lot of time but I love looking at them and I love how each of them is like a little waypoint from when I was very young to now do you have them like do you have images of these anywhere like online that I can link to I don't yet I actually thought about photographing them because I recently bought a decent lighting set for you know the the rare occasion when I do a video podcast and I thought, well, I could make a little, you know, kind of drop sheet studio and probably set these things up and take great pictures of them. I have a decent camera and put them somewhere and I just haven't had the time to do it. Please so do it. I, I, I <laughs> yeah. plan to, I, it's on, it's on my list. It's, it's one of those things that I will get around to right now. I carry around on my iPhone, like pictures of my daughter and a picture or two of this wall of fun so that when people are like, you know, oh, you're into video games? I show them my kid, and then I'm like, and here's this other awesome thing I'm really proud of. <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing that I'm truly proud of in my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I always wished um, I could get a, a Game Boy uh, Lite, which was the Japanese Game Boy, I think, the one with the backlit screen that never came to Europe. Yeah. You guys ever, ever saw one of those? Ever seen yeah. one of those? Mm-hmm. I have a Game Boy Pocket. Which I'm I, I I don't think I ever really used it. Uh, I always wanted a Game Boy Light, 
and I, I, I went to eBay like a couple of months ago uh, because I wanted to get um, one, of the, one of those Game Boy Advance SP with a, with a uh, better backlit screen. Um, yeah. The AGS 101 model, I think it's called. And I couldn't find, couldn't find anything you know, below 100 euros. And so I started looking for the Game Boy Light again. I don't know why. And um, it, it's a dangerous uh, hobby to buy old video game stuff. Yeah, you can go, you can go broke really easily. Yeah, I have to I have to keep that in mind yeah, when I'm looking exactly. at stuff because you know doing research for this show, I ended up on eBay as often happens, <laughs> and I was finding import versions of this and rare versions of that, and I was like, oh, I really I'm gonna watch these, but I'm not gonna get them. And I didn't, I didn't get anything this time, but it's hard. Once you start thinking about it, there's always more fun, rare, interesting stuff that you can pick up. Yeah. I think, I think uh, part of the fun is also in trying to track down an old game, trying to, you know, talk to the seller and try to find the best deal. I think that's also part of the experience. Definitely. And, uh, because it's not about so the much... playing, right? Because you can just get emulators and stuff. Like, uh, yeah, you know, it's not it's, necessarily it's, about that. It's a that. collection thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. I don't really have a collection of, of old games. I mean, it's just one of the many things. It's one of the only things that I don't have a collection of. Um, and, I, and I'm trying not to, to... I'm trying just to listen to you guys and not take too much of it in because otherwise, I, you know, it's another thing Mike will spend money on is buying old video games consoles. There is a part of me that would love like a uh, SNES. Um, that's like that. That's my console. Like the SNES, man, oh, I love that thing so bad. It's why I want one of the um, the, the 3DSs with like the great colors. You know, like the red, the yellow, the green, and the the blue. But I think that. They don't do those in like the large size, like the new ones. It's only in the smaller size that have got those great colors to them. But I think that's such a cool like thing to go back to. Yeah, I just had I had an SNES when it launched, um, and because that's I don't I remember if it launched with it or if it came out shortly thereafter. But that was the first time you could get Street Fighter Two at home, and that was a big deal. There was a lot of you know, weeknight study sessions at my house where we studied for a little while in high school and then decided this would be better served, this time would be better served if we were battling it out in Street Fighter. And I sold it, the SNES and the games that I had a while back. And recently, a buddy of mine from the office found one when he was cleaning out his parents' house with about 20 different games and donated it to the collection. So I owe him a little placard that says, you know, property of... (laughs) The collection now, yeah. He's made an official donation to the museum. He has, yep, he gets a plaque. It's on loan, like you see, on loan from the Museum of Greece. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we could probably talk, sit here and talk about collecting old video games all day, and mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll come back to it. But one of, the, one of the things that we actually brought you on to talk about today, the main thing, was the Dreamcast. Because the Dreamcast has, has had an anniversary this week. How many years has it been? 15 15 years so it's it's a, a monumental anniversary and as a, a guy with a, a great gaming history like yours and, and i believe you you have a, a personal affinity to the dreamcast as a console right i do indeed yeah i i don't know why i can't quite pinpoint it i was telling you just you know before we started recording it just happened to be this perfect storm of not too much work to do and just enough disposable income at the time that it came out and it just swirled and made a really, really fun time for me. So I, I really think of it fondly and I always have since then. So like how old, if you don't mind me asking Seth, how old were you when the Dreamcast came out? Uh, let's see, that was 99. So uh, it came out just before my 23rd birthday. So I mean, as well, obviously, this is this is back when Sega was in a better position uh, than they yeah. are now, right? Well, I mean, that's arguable, right? They they're in a different position now. They were even at the time they weren't in a terrific position because of what preceded the Dreamcast, especially in North America. The Saturn was, I think, more popular in Japan than it was here, and the stuff that even preceded that, like the the later add-ons to the Genesis, were kind of 
not really well received. And Sega on the hardware front in the U.S. was probably a little dinged up from that. So they really needed a win. Yeah, and and I mean they they decided to. Uh, there was the the Dreamcast announcement at uh, E3, and there was like the surprise release date. Uh, you remember when they did the kind of a. Uh, announcement and like surprise launch and nobody was expecting the Dreamcast to come out so soon because there were rumors of you know Sony working on the PlayStation 2 and there were rumors of Microsoft trying to you know um, of course with the Xbox and but Sega kind of surprised everybody by launching the Dreamcast uh, I think it was a year before the PlayStation 2 and and I guess that in many ways the Dreamcast was ahead of its time for many of the features that it that it that it shipped with, so I wanted to ask you, Seth, if you what you remember from getting you know the day that you got the Dreamcast, and did, did you get the impression that the the console was um, futuristic in some ways? What was it already clear that, that the Dreamcast was different, or was it something that that you realized with time? No, I noticed it right away. At the time, I had. You know, the original PlayStation, the PlayStation 1, and I had an N64. And the Dreamcast launched in September, and I didn't buy it for myself. I didn't even buy it on launch day. Um, My girlfriend at the time knew that I loved video games, and for my birthday, I think it was my birthday, or maybe it was Christmas that year, but it was, you know, a little while after the launch, got me the Dreamcast and basically said, I don't expect to see you much anymore. Uh, I understand what I've done to myself, but I, you know, I know you like this, so have fun. So I got it a little bit after launch, but when you turned it on and when you started to play those games, those early games, even the launch titles were really just huge leaps ahead of the N64 and the PlayStation at that point. I, I was a big PlayStation fan. I had a lot of games that I loved on it, but when you turned the system on and just the entire aesthetic of it, like the hardware itself, the boot screen, the little kind of bouncy menu, everything was just like a little newer, a little fresher. And then when you loaded a game like Soul Calibur and played it and saw both the richness of the detail and, you know, the incredible renderings of, of, you know, landscapes and stuff like that, it was breathtaking. It really was a huge jump from what we had seen. And I mean, of course, the the controller, right? It was uh, pretty different from from uh, what we were seeing with the PlayStation, and and I guess it was more similar to the to the controller of the N sixty four than uh, what Sony was doing. And I w- I wanted to ask you about um, the you know the virtual uh, memory unit. The the uh, the VMU yeah um, with the little screen right and did you get one of those uh, right away as well or uh, oh yeah yeah you had to because that was not only how you did extra stuff with the system but that was really where you saved your games so it was required for the most part if you really wanted to do anything with the system the controller itself I remember taking it out and feeling it and it was there's. The controller was pretty polarizing, I think, even to this day, because of it had a little bit of an odd shape, kind of like a pontoon boat, where it was very tall on the sides and almost a little sharp underneath. Not like not like a really sharp edge, but sharper than like the PlayStation, where everything was molded and curved, and the N64 had a little bit of height to it, but it was still very much curved in your hand. The Dreamcast had an edge to it, almost like the bottom of a boat. And the VMU slotted into the top, so there was a hollow space underneath, and you kind of just gripped it and went at mm-hmm. it. Uh, yeah, it, it it was one of those things that it actually took me a little while to get used to, and I remember the analog stick didn't have a real soft touch to it. It had, like, little kind of bumps on it like a textured surface and that even took some getting used to because the dual shock at the time had nice you know kind of soft rubber coating on it and it felt good and it was very you know the looseness of it was good the height of the analog stick on the dreamcast was a little bit different it had a little bit different tension but they also had really cool triggers which made a big difference because the triggers felt completely different than the shoulder buttons on 
the PlayStation Control, and they added a very interesting element to some of the different kinds of gameplay. You know, the the racing games that use them as acceleration and things like that. If I recall correctly, they were analog, so they depressed, and you got a response based on how far you were pulling it in, and it it felt very in tune with the the motion that you were trying to commit to it. It always kind of bothered me that the the colors of the buttons were uh, similar to the SNES on the on the Dreamcast uh, controller. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I, and- I always thought it was like. Like some sort of you know little joke from from Sega to to Nintendo, and it's funny because I'm I'm pretty sure you guys your version of the SNES did have multicolored buttons, but the US version just had yeah. two tone purple. There was a light purple and a dark purple. So yeah, we I don't had think, red, green, blue, and yellow. Right. I don't think many people even thought about that here because at the time, still you know the notion of importing games and systems was really really something that you had to be super hardcore about and you had to for me at least at that time it meant driving from new jersey to manhattan going downtown to some crazy little game store paying through the nose for either you know a modded system or you know some kind of boot disc that would play stuff and and then the games of course were exorbitant because they everything had to be imported so it was something that at the time u.s gamers I don't think really did by and large, so we wouldn't have even seen it. Yeah, and um, I said virtual memory unit. Uh, I think it was visual memory unit. I don't know why I said virtual, probably because of these because <laughs> it is Visual yeah. makes more sense, right? Yeah, yeah. I wanna I wanna talk a little bit more about that actually, and also some of the games. But I, I wanna talk about the the visual memory unit. Maybe we can talk about Sonic. Um, and, and, and some of the interesting things that happened there. But can if I could just take a quick break to thank our first sponsor, guys. Yeah. And yeah. we can jump right back into that. So I want to take a moment to thank our friends over at lynda.com today for helping support this episode of Virtual. Lynda is an easy and affordable way to help individuals and organizations learn. You can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts on software, web development, graphic design, and so much more. Lynda makes sure that they work directly with industry experts and software companies directly to provide you with timely training. They do this when new software is released, often on the same day, or and they're always making sure that they're keeping things up to date. They're going to make sure that you're up to speed, right? And they do this by finding these experts, and they but they also use fantastic, high-quality equipment to create these tutorials for you. You're not looking at, like, homemade videos. You're not looking at a guy pointing a camcorder at his MacBook Pro screen. These are courses that are made in professional studios with professional equipment. They sound great, and they look great. And they're also broken down into bite-sized pieces. This enables you to learn at your own pace. You can go from start to finish. You can jump around. If you want to find a quick answer, you can learn the way that you want, and you can learn in the in the places that you want as well. Because you can also access Linda's courses on iPhone, iPad, and Android in their fantastic apps. They have great tools like searchable transcripts. They can give you certificates of course completion if you want. You can also publish these to your LinkedIn profile, which is a nice little touch. Um, you can get all of these. They have over 100,000 videos for a low price of $25 a month. It's fantastic. And they have videos on everything. Videos on development. Maybe you're interested in creating a new app for the iPhone or iPad you know, with all the announcements that they've seen this week. You can go and learn iPhone development. Maybe you want to learn animation. Maybe you want to get started in the video game world. You want to learn 3D animation. You can do that. Maybe you want to become a podcaster so you can talk about old video games for an hour. Well, they have all of the stuff that you need to learn Logic and GarageBand and things like that in there as well. And so much more. I'm just like scratching the surface on the incredible stuff that lynda.com has. And we've worked out a great deal. So you can go and try all this stuff out for yourself and see if lynda.com is the right thing for you. I'm sure it will be. But if you head over to lynda.com slash virtual right now, you can sign up and get access to all courses for free for seven days. So go to lynda.com slash virtual and sign up right now. Thank you so much to lynda.com for their support of virtual. So we kind of touched on it a little bit and that the... The controller and the memory card, the memory unit, were different. And it had a kind of like an LCD in it, right? Seth, can you tell me a little bit about this? Like, what was the, the virtual memory unit? Yeah, the virtual memory unit, or the visual, visual memory unit. Yeah, ah. we, we, 
We'll get it right. I think the virtual vi- memory unit is probably going to be the show title. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it was called just visual memory in Europe. That's why um, I get confused because I remember there was a different name. So I looked it up on Wikipedia and sure enough, uh, it was a different name for Japan, Europe and the US. So consistency, guys. That's what we love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the unit itself was a tiny... Uh, it wasn't tiny. I mean, the, the PlayStation memory cards were tiny by comparison. It was probably about the size of, you know, a large pack of gum, uh, but thinner. And it had a little screen on it with a frightful resolution. It was super blocky. I, it might have been like, you know, 32 by 32. I don't I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was it was really super like 8-bitty. It looked like, you know, retro. And it had little tiny controllers like a little tiny d-pad and little buttons and the cool thing about it was that it it locked into the controller so one side was flat you know rounded with the buttons the other side had like a like a plug to go into the the port in the controller and you would drop it in the controller and kind of lock it in there and the controller had a cutout that the screen from the vmu would show through and so when it was in the controller based on the game that you were playing some developers would take advantage of that and give you kind of a very, very basic second screen experience. So there were certain games where you could check inventory or you could see little bits of a map. Or if you were playing something like a football game, you could see, you could go through like your plays that you were about to set up. There were different uses for it within the game context. But the thing that made it crazy was when you would take it out of the controller you could go to your friend's house with it and lock it into one of their controllers and all your stuff would be there. But more so, there were other little tiny mini games that would also be available that you could play with the little tiny controls. And when I say tiny, I mean like Game Boy Micro is tiny. This is like half the size of the Game Boy Micro. Like it's really, really, really small. And the mini games were, you know, kind of silly, short little experiences, but they were there. They were interesting and they were there. And you could hook them up together and trade data and do like, you know, rudimentary social things. It was a very, very interesting system that had a lot of different components and different things going on. And I don't know how much people liked it, but it offered a lot of new ideas and a lot of new potential in addition to just the console experience. Can you give me an example of like one of of how that worked? Like what kind of games like what what console games were there that then had the little like sort of mini game and like how did they work together and like like probably sonic is a really good example of this right because i also have uh a little bit of dreamcast experience i'll tell my story in a moment but i played the sonic game what was the sonic game called Sonic Adventure. Sonic Adventure. Sonic Adventure. And it had the little i mean we were talking about this before the show we're going to call them chows but it was probably like Cows. Yeah. Anyway, right. so it had these little things. Explain this. Explain this to our listeners in case they're not familiar with it. Yeah. So with Sonic, you could you could have a little. Let's call them chows, like we said. A side, a kind of virtual pet. So it was kind of like a little Tomagachi thing. Yeah, because that was the cra- that was a craze still. I think. Yeah, time, that I was yeah. that was yeah. pretty big at that time, late '90s. That was something that a lot of people were into. And so you would play the game, and it would save your Sonic data. But then you could also use the VMU to take care of the chow. So you could, you know, raise it and interact with it and do little stuff and. You know, there were little mini games that you could play. And it was just, you know, honestly, I guess maybe the age that I was at, it wasn't too compelling to me because I wasn't into that little virtual pet craze. But I know that... And the other problem with it was probably that the Dreamcast seemed like a very mature product. So I don't know that the kids at that age who were into that kind of thing even would have had it to do that with. It seemed like a really interesting idea that maybe missed its audience. But yeah, there were there were little things that you could do like that and you could kind of take it with you and do other stuff. But I found it most useful for games that required like a, a map or inventory or something like that where instead of having 
some on-screen element displayed like a HUD or something, you could just glance down and see how many bullets you had remaining or cool. what yeah. segment of a map you were walking around in. It, and it, that's, it, that's years before the Nintendo DS and, and the Wii U. Right. That's, yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. So, so Mike, what's your story? Oh, yeah, so... <laughs> I have a uh, basically my my Dreamcast uh, experience was pretty much just this Sonic game. Uh, was there like a, a what like a jet ski game for the Dreamcast? Yeah, I th- I don't remember the name of it, but I think there was because I think I may have played. If there was, I played that too. But I I mainly played Sonic, and it, and it was you know the the running around in the 3D Sonic environments, which I never really enjoyed. But there was, like, the the Chow adventure type scenario. You go into this area and you could, like, raise the Chows and... Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, the, that, the I, Chow I had, Garden, right? Chow Garden, that's it. And I had much more play in that because that was quite interesting. That was fun. Like, at, at, at that time, like, my age then, it was, like, you'd run around and you could, like, throw fruit at them and stuff. It was, you know, whatever. And you could grow them. And, and the more you collected in the game, the more and more appeared in the in the area. And that was kind of the Sonic Adventure game for me and my buddy was just being able to put more chows in the chow garden. Um, but so I, I was a friend of mine at, at school and he just had like, and this is, and I, I kind of wanted to tell this story and see what you think about this. So he had a really weird kind of video game relationship in his family. So his dad was massively into video games. So he had uh, an N64 and that was my, my buddy Shane. That was what he had. And his dad, um, I'm just shaming him on the show. Uh, I, I'm not in contact with him. I haven't spoken in like 10, 15 years. We'll see what happens. Uh, his dad uh, bought a Dreamcast and then he later bought a PS2. But we weren't allowed to play it. What? Only he was allowed to play it. And we were only allowed to play it when, he, like, me and my buddy Shane were only allowed to play it when his dad was home. And even then, it was for, like limited amounts of time. So it, it was so strange because it was like it was his dad's and we weren't allowed. But it wasn't like there were no video games allowed in the house because we played, we used to play like the N64 a lot. We used to play like GoldenEye and WWE No Mercy and stuff. Like we used to play those games. Um, but we weren't allowed to play the Dreamcast. So basically what would happen is we would get home from school at about 3.30 and they and his parents wouldn't come home until about 6. So we would like search the house to find the games console because his dad would hide it. Seriously? <laughs> they would hide it. So we would spend like half an hour searching around the house, finding the games console, playing Sonic for like, maybe an hour or two, hide the games console again, and when he come home, like, beg and plead to be able to play it again? I think his dad had um, some kind of control issues. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 100% yeah. that was it. But it was just such a weird thing. <laughs> so, like, the Dreamcast for me is like a forbidden console. <laughs> Because I had a PlayStation 2, right? So even though we had this weird relationship with the PS2, I had one at home, so it was like, whatever. It was just the games that his dad had were like games that I wouldn't have had, like Eco. Like, I wouldn't have played that game. I didn't own it at home, and I wouldn't have bought it, but we played it there, so there was like some weird games. But like the Dreamcast, for me, is like this mythical console. It's the only place I ever played one was at my buddy Shane's house. But to play it, it was like an adventure every single time we wanted to play. So to hunt the house really quickly, set it all up. And that was difficult enough, right? Trying to set the console up, yeah. getting all that, the cables right. And just uh, and then, then we, me and him would fight over playing, right? Because we had such a short <laughs> space of time to play the games. And I, and I assume there was an anxiety component. Oh, God, yeah, because you're playing. It can come home at any just moment. Look, just looking <laughs> over your shoulder and make sure the dad wasn't there <laughs> it was just so weird I, it's just I've never told this story before like and, and it, when we said we were going to talk about it I was like Federico I have a really weird story on it <laughs> yeah tell. it is really weird you're right so well, you're, I, you're in a safe place you can tell the story here thanks, it's okay but I it, have two really sad memories from that time period Okay. And one is Dreamcast related. The other is about um, a Tamagotchi uh, thing. Yes, so, let's do it. <laughs> okay, so the, the the Tamagotchi thing is basically all my friends in, in um, primary school 
were into the the real original Tamagotchi thing, yeah. and uh, and I wasn't because I thought it was stupid because I just didn't care for the little uh, thing on the screen. So I didn't. My mother asked me, "Do you, do you want me to buy you a Tamagotchi because all your friends have one?" And I said, "No, I don't care. I don't want to feed a pet." And then a few few months later, Nintendo came out with this Pikachu Tamagotchi. Uh, it was like a yellow little device. Oh my god, and I did w- not know this existed. Yes, it was also <laughs> a step counter. <laughs> oh, and, well, you'd love it then. And, yeah. And, <laughs> oh, I do remember this. And I wanted a, one of these so yes. bad. Hold on, hold on. There was a Pikachu on the screen and you could like pet Pikachu or like feed him. Uh, yeah. I think. And you could also count steps. So I I would uh, I was so into that because I, I felt like a Pokemon trainer. Yeah, man. So I, ju- I just I was like ten or eleven, and I, and I, and I kept walking around with Turbo with my parents with this little uh, thing on my on my on my jeans, uh, and I was so proud of uh, you know <laughs> I felt I, I felt seriously proud of owning that until one day I lost it. Oh no! <laughs> one day I lost it, and I, and. I, and I went back home, and my mother uh, told me that I made it die, that, that, that mm. I killed it because I lost it, and I felt so sad. <laughs> Why would she say that? That's very dramatic. <laughs> yes. Yes. She also said the same thing when I stopped playing Nintendo Dogs on Nintendo DS. <laughs> occasionally, she, occasionally, she keeps mentioning that the dogs on the game are dead. <laughs> Because oh, I'm is... not playing the game anymore. I don't know why she likes she likes to be so dramatic about it. Um, apparently, she likes the idea of animals inside games being dead for some reason. I, I don't know. I'm learning it's a sad. lot about you guys today. Yeah, this is, this <laughs> is therapy. So the, the Dreamcast uh, story. Um, so my, my dad, um, he doesn't know anything about video games. And... I think it was 1999, so the, the year that Dreamcast came out in Europe. And But I wanted a PlayStation, right? Because um, I really, really wanted a PlayStation, and, and I bought a PlayStation really late, like a couple of years before the PlayStation 2. And so I was asking my parents every day to buy me a PlayStation. And... So they, they buy me this PlayStation and they buy me the, the, the console with no games, right? And inside the console, there's just a demo, uh, like the, the blue or the red demo disc. And I start playing with the, with the demo, but I'm like, okay, thanks for the PlayStation, but you bought me no games. And this goes on for like a week. And, and I just keep playing the demo. There's like the first level of Tomb Raider and some other platform game. I think there was a demo of the first Ape Escape. And, but I want a real game. So my, um, one day my, my dad uh, picks me up at school and, and he's like, I bought you this game. And I could tell that he was, um, that he was really happy. Like he was happy to give a, that gift to me because buying a game for him was like, uh, was like a really serious uh, task, I guess, because he was kind of against me playing video games because he thought that games were stupid. And he just wanted me to study. So giving me that game was like proof that he accepted my hobby, right? And so I was super surprised and happy to see, you know, my dad is buying me a game. So it's cool with it, right? And uh, but he bought a game for the Dreamcast, not for the PlayStation. (laughs) 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 He bought, he just went to the mall, right? And... uh, (laughs) And was like, I need a video game. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> he didn't even ask. He went to the, to the, to the shelf area with the, with the video games. He saw Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, I think it was, for the Dreamcast. And he just picked it up because it looked like a game. He gives me this <laughs> well, game. He uh, gives me this game. And I'm like, okay, cool. But, you know, it's, um, I, can, I cannot play this game. And I could tell that his eyes, uh, like, sadness appearing on his face and um, I felt so bad that I didn't even want to change the game and then I told my mom about it and she was like I mean this is useless you gotta you gotta you know return the game and get a PlayStation one 
And so that was my first and only, I guess, experience with my dream with the Dreamcast because I I didn't have any friends with the console. I didn't buy a Dreamcast myself. I didn't even later, like when I when I got into the you know, the hobby of collecting games, I didn't think of getting a Dreamcast. I did get the Sonic Adventure remakes for the GameCube, and I, and I was really into uh, Soul Calibur when it when it came out, uh, also on the GameCube. But that was my only experiences associated associated with sadness, basically, because I, I felt really sorry for my dad because he was so proud of giving me a game, and then it was, uh, you know, the wrong game. Was it a special occasion that he just buy you a video game? No, I just wanted to sh- to show his approval. I think. Okay. Oh, it was really against generally. me. Yeah, because like <laughs> in Italy, especially, the PlayStation became popular a few years later, right? And there was always on, like, on television, on the, on the news, the stories of video games and PlayStation are bad for the kids. And right. also Sony was kind of aggressive with the, with, the, uh, with the advertisement for the PlayStation. Uh, there were weird commercials on TV, so people kept, think, kept thinking that maybe PlayStation was kind of weird and yeah, like kind of dangerous. Do you remember the, the ads with the child in the room? Yeah, it, it was weird. Yeah, right? weird and, stuff. Yeah. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm sorry I had two, these two sad stories. My here's was, was weird, basically. Mine was weird. You're not sad. <laughs> yeah. But, like, the, your second one is, like, cute sad, right? Because it's yeah. like your dad tried to do something and he tried his best. Uh, but the, the your mother treating <laughs> your, like, treating you badly because you let your video game characters die. That is maybe my favorite story I've had this year. Uh, <laughs> the, the idea, like, she's just disappointed in her son because he let the, he let the computer animals die. Yes. <laughs> No, she keeps mentioning Nintendogs to this day. I really? Think a couple of weeks ago, she she asked me about. Um, yeah, because I had a I had a beagle in the game, mm-hmm. and and she asked me uh, what happened to the dogs. Are they dead? And I'm like, Mama, I don't know. That was like ten years ago, I think. At this point, <laughs> I assume you don't you don't have the game anymore because they'll still I be do. there, right? I have the game. You should show her. You should be like, see, Mama, I look after them. I'm not sure what I could find, honestly. So, Seth, I want to want to talk to you a bit about your favorite Dreamcast games, unless you have any like super sad video game stories. Uh, <laughs> but while I let you think about one of those, uh, let's talk about our second sponsor for this week's episode, and that's our friends over at Igloo, an intranet you'll actually like. Igloo is built with easy-to-use integrated apps like shared calendars, Twitter-like microblogs, file sharing, task management, and so much more. With Igloo, you can work better together with your coworkers. You're easily able to co-author documents, share status updates about what your mother thinks of your video game habits, and manage your projects all in one place. When someone makes changes to an item in Igloo, notifications are sent out to you in the way that you choose, and a complete version history of documents are maintained, keeping everyone in sync. And this also makes sure that if somebody accidentally makes a change to a document or deletes something, you've got everything backed up and it's all ready, it's all protected. Just this past week, Gartner released their famed report, Magic Quadrant for Social Software in the Workplace, which is my favourite name for a report ever. Um, in which Igloo appears for their sixth consecutive year alongside huge companies like Microsoft, IBM, Google, and SEP. In a report that values the size of the vendor, which in Gartner terms is known as viability, Igloo is praised for their responsiveness and customer experience. This is an excerpt from that profile. Feedback from Igloo's reference customers was consistently positive. They praised the product's quick deployment, configuration, and customization flexibility with self-service options for non-technical users, control over branding, and information organization and ease of use. They also praised the responsiveness of Igloo as an organization. What more do you need than that? If your company has a legacy intranet built on SharePoint or old portal technology, you should be giving Igloo a try. It's free to use of up to 10 people, and you can sign up right now at igloosoftware.com slash virtual. Thank you so much to Igloo for their support of this show and all of RelayFM. So tell me, Seth, about some of your favorite games on the Dreamcast. My, so the Dream, before we go on, was the jet ski type game that you referred to, Hydro Thunder, by any chance? It could potentially be. I think that was like jet boats and other aquatic racing things. Yes, I it think definitely, I, definitely was yeah, this game. Yeah, I, think I remember, I I remember that logo. 
All right, I just needed to. I just needed to get that out of my head. I you needed that for it. yourself, didn't you? <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, my favorite games. The Dreamcast was one of those systems that had a really super wide variety of game styles and genres. I found myself trying things on it that I really did not anticipate, and that's I think also what made it so memorable. Um, some of the play mechanics that were introduced between the the creativity in the game itself and also these nutso peripherals that they would release made it like a really interesting, different kind of experience. So early on, I became obsessed with Soul Calibur, and I was not really into 3D fighters that much. I was more of a 2D fighter person, and to be honest, uh, you know, if, if I'm really coming clean, I'm not great at them. I would readily get trounced by my friends, but I so enjoyed bad. them. So bad at those games. Yeah. I cannot I just, play fighting games. I've yeah. never been able to do it. I don't know why. Yeah. You're not alone. You're not alone. Good. But uh, I, I loved a lot of them. There was, uh, you know, there 2D fighters, there's so much variety that you can find a style, you can find a kind of, you know, different genre 2D fighter. Like my favorite one, I think was Darkstalkers for PlayStation, which was this ridiculous 2D fighter that had, like, Frankenstein and vampires and, you know, wolf men and ladies and different kinds of, like, that kind of B-movie beast style. But the animation was awesome, and there those games appeared a couple times on PlayStation, and there was even an import one on the Dreamcast that I spent far too much getting, uh... But Soul Calibur became an obsession for me. I I don't know why. It might have been because it was just so, so gorgeous at the time. And it was one of the best looking games on the system. It was one of the first games on the system. It was a launch game. But as I started to say, there were so many different kinds of experiences that you could get into that I found myself, maybe out of boredom, maybe out of curiosity, just trying things. And because the Dreamcast internals were based on arcade components the uh, Naomi arcade board in particular they brought a lot of really great ports over so House of the Dead 2 played exceptionally well so I picked up a light gun and killed some zombies because it was super fun um, one of the greatest games that I played through multiple times came a little later uh, in the U.S. it was released as Jet Grind Radio but in Japan and elsewhere it was Jet Set Radio and it was Gorgeous to look at because it had this really awesome cell shading style, which was pretty, it was getting very popular at the time, you know, and the, the play controls and the music and everything, the entire atmosphere of the game was just great. There was just so many different new things that you could do in it. And it was really difficult. Like it was a tough game to master and to finish. And it, it again, it just became an obsession of mine. The one that sticks out as really kind of funny and i say this to people and they're like come on is bass fishing sega bass fishing oh man i played this game yeah i, <laughs> I remember this yeah they had they had the bass fishing they had a sequel and they had marine fishing and it, you could buy a fishing pole yes controller yes this was one of the games i played at the weird house yeah <laughs> And I bought this one day, and my friends were like, "What is wrong with you?" And I was like, <laughs> well, let's let's try it. You know, it was like a Tuesday or something, and I went to the mall and was like, "I want something new to play with. This is, let's try it." You know, I could always take it back. And I remember we sat around and turned it on and played it, and it was so dumb, but it was so much fun. It was so much fun. I couldn't even I couldn't even understand why, but it was so enjoyable and. I'll tell you a sort of happy story that's not a sad story about my dad and video games. My dad just doesn't do technology stuff at all. Uh, he's an amazing human being, but he just isn't into it at all. He saw me playing this game one time and was like, what are you doing? I told him, I'm like, oh, it's fishing. You know, you kind of sit here and you cast and you reel it in and it vibrates and there's stuff. And he's like, let me see it. And I'm like, come here, you try it. And he actually sat down and played this fishing game with me for like an hour, which was something that he would never have done with any other game because they would have just been too complicated. But it was this experience that he knew he'd, he'd fished before, but it was this thing in our house and it was kind of funny and we were laughing. So 
you know, these kinds of things, and this is one of like at least five that I could probably rattle off of unique games with a unique peripheral that paired with it. And granted, you probably didn't use it for any other game, but it provided this totally new experience that was surprisingly enjoyable. Yeah, like what else would you use the fishing rod? Like what what other game would you yeah. use the fishing rod in? But there did were you ever, did you ever play Seth um Samba de Amigo? Yes. Yep, yeah. that's another one. Yep. What's that? I game? remember. It's a rhythm game, but the peripheral controller was maracas that you had to shake <laughs> to, to stay in time with the little funny animations. Yeah. And it was like a monkey with a with a Mexican hat. Yep. On the screen, yeah. Yep. I remember seeing the screenshots because uh, uh, I was really into video game magazines and I bought like three or di- or four different magazines each week. And I remember scrolling through the Dreamcast section, which was pretty small, you know, because the console was not really popular here. And I remember the day that there was the Somebody Amigo uh, preview or review and uh, and I was like, this is crazy. I, 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 I kind of wanted to play the game, but I didn't want to get a Dreamcast for that. And I saw that, uh, like a couple of years ago, there was um, Sega tried some kind of reboot, and it didn't work out so well. Um, but yeah, the the peripherals for the Dreamcast, I saw an article on Polygon um, back in in April, I think, about you know the the Dreamcast was like the golden age of uh, these crazy accessories, and l- like you said, there were many of these accessories these accessories could only be used for one game because they were compatible with the, with the experience offered by, by just one game, like the, you know, the fishing game or some of the Amigo with the, with the Maracas. And did you, did you have any other of these crazy control systems or have you ever tried to use them with other games? Are they even compatible? Is there, are you aware of any project to, you know, to, to, like to hack around and and use these uh, crazy things with other games. I don't know of other other games that utilize them, or if you could, or and only some of the buttons would work, or if people had done hacks to you know play stuff on the PC by hooking them up via USB or stuff like that. I I used to really follow all this stuff a lot more closely, and obviously this scene is not as big as it used to be. I personally have. Uh, like one of the pro arcade sticks that they released that my buddy gave me because he didn't want it anymore. And it has a giant weighted base. And it's essentially, it's, I'm looking at it now. I'm just turning around and looking at it. It's mm. probably about the size of a 15 inch MacBook Pro, like the base of it with a, f- you know, a nice stick and a bunch of buttons. And you would slot your VMU into the top of it. And it was weighted, and you would sit it on a table, and you could really go berserk with it. I also have, not a lot of people have it as far as I know, the keyboard, the Sega Dreamcast keyboard, because one of the other things that you could do with it was go on the internet. So they, they released a keyboard for it, and while the internet experience wasn't that good, Typing of the Dead was it was a yeah. really bizarre interesting take on the house of the dead series where instead of brandishing a light gun you had to type words and phrases to take out zombies and oh man weird house had this keyboard i remember <laughs> it i remember trying to get on the internet with it because i remember the mouse with the dreamcast logo yep yeah man yeah, we yeah. had that. I love that the, the more we're talking about this, the more I'm remembering about this forbidden game. Yeah, these are re- repressed memories that you're now uncovering. There was So I'm looking at the Wikipedia article, right? There was a microphone. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I can see the arcade stick. There's, there was a camera called the Dream Eye. Yep. Yep, I have all these. I saved all these links just in case you wanted to talk about them. They There was also a twin stick configuration for a game called Virtual On where you controlled these giant mechs and the stick itself. I remember that. Yeah. Was this massive thing that like kind of sat in front of you and was angled yeah. and it had these it was basically like piloting a Jaeger from Pacific Rim and you would just have these giant sticks and the, I think if I recall correctly the the controller itself was like 200 bucks or something and it was and the game was like another 50. So you really had to be a fan of 
giant mech fighting to to lay down the money for that. But the microphone was for another game called Seaman, which was oh, yeah. another bizarre Japanese yes. thing that made its way over here where you controlled this weird little fish person and you would talk to it and it would say stuff back to you. And it, I would call it a sim, but it's such a strange game. I don't know what it would be a simulation of because nothing on earth really exists that looks like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm trying yeah, to... Oh, wow. Look at the images for this thing. It was a yeah. weird game. He looks yeah. so angry. This guy. Yeah, he would get cranky from time to time. <laughs> I found so I, wanna, I wanted to ask you, Seth, um, before we, we talk about why did the reason why the Dreamcast failed and, you know, the problems that Sega faced with the, with the Sony PlayStation 2, I wanted to ask you what kind of, like, the impact of the Dreamcast on the, on the video game industry and, like, the trends that, that Sega saw before the competition and, uh, I mean, the Dreamcast had this visual memory unit and the idea of, you know, seeing uh, elements of the interface on another screen, that was later, you know, uh, used by Nintendo with the Nintendo DS and, and the Wii U. And now Sony is doing some of this stuff with the PS Vita and Remote Play, and Microsoft is doing that with the Xbox and Smart Glass. So that was one. And I, I wanted to ask you if... In your years of experience in playing video games, uh, what kind of other technologies or ideas have you seen first on the Dreamcast and later uh, used by other companies? The, the notion of the second screen certainly is probably the, the most easily identifiable one. The, the fact that it had an internet connection wasn't really new because consoles had been doing that since the 80s in Japan. And that in and of itself wasn't notable, but it was, I think, the first one to, ha to really do it here with its own dedicated network. It, you could yeah. hook up to Sega Net here, and it was a dedicated ISP just for games. And unfortunately, at the time, broadband really wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now, so the net experience... No, you know, no pun intended. The the overall experience of that was less than great. Um, a lot of people who tried it really didn't enjoy it, and it was going over phone lines, so there were all kinds of issues with latency and things like that. When it worked, it was marvelous, but it wasn't really something that a lot of people ended up doing. But online play and and collaborative online play obviously is something that is table stakes for consoles today, and while the notion of going online wasn't unique, I think the way that the Dreamcast approached it definitely set the stage for the consoles that came after it to build on that idea and say, okay, we need to have our own, you know, in our own environment for this, and it needs to be a dedicated space, and we need to scale it appropriately and make sure, you know, that we don't make these same mistakes again. I think another thing that probably set it apart, and while this is less, less pervasive now than it was would be the peripherals because after the Dreamcast, like there had always been peripherals for consoles. If you think back to the NES, I mean, there's even stuff before that, but the NES, because of its popularity, there was the Zapper, there's the Advantage Stick, there's the Max, you know, uh, you know, Super Pad, there's the Power Pad, the Power Glove, there's stuff that had been added on to the console. But I think the way that the Dreamcast did it with the games that it had, like the fishing controller and the rhythm games and the maracas and things like that, that opened the door for a lot of other stuff. Because in the years that followed, we saw stuff like um, Guitar Hero and Rock Band. And there, were, there, were more, there was more acceptance of these basically plastic toys that you would buy for one game, more or less, to kind of enter the living room and sit there and have a, a, a role to play. And it inspired more collaborative gaming. I think it was more of a social experience because, you know, to really have a great time, you'd invite some friends over and do that. And that, you know, I think that kind of rolled itself into the way that the Wii became successful, even though, there, you know, maybe the notion of peripherals wasn't as... Um, 
as important the notion of social and approachable gaming was, and people saw stuff like a little plastic guitar differently than they did with, you know, a controller with 16 buttons on it that they had to figure out. And the the age of peripherals, I think, is probably waning, as that Polygon article will will also, you know, point out. But the notion of these different experiences and also kind of bringing people together to do stuff created uh, like a wave that carried it, you know, carried gaming through a couple of years. And now we see the, the, the results of that, you know, social experiences with gaming. Um, that's something that people look for now. And I've, you know, Federico, you and I have spoken about this briefly, just like over Twitter, but I was never really into online gaming. I was always more of a solitary gamer. And so I never really went in for those online experiences. I still don't go online with consoles today and do stuff. And now it's, you know, it's just one of those things I don't do. So I missed out on that part of it. But I think the other part of it, the kind of like wacky having fun with your friends thing, I think that made more of an impact on me anyway. And I think that... um... The uh, the idea of a of a memory card that uh, stores your progress and it's portable and you can go to your friend's house and and exchange files or just you know import your progress. I think it's kind of come back with the NFC toys uh, in a kind of different way because these are toys that you know kids can play with. But the idea of storing your progress from a console and making it portable and you can import your you know your files and and do. Uh, collaboration stuff with your friends when playing on a different console that was also you know that's kind of coming back from the from the dreamcast anyway and uh, but yeah i think especially the point that you made about the accessories and and the peripherals um in looking back at all these articles about the dreamcast and all this crazy uh stuff that you could you know uh play with it's kind of a it's kind of sad that uh, you know we don't get these toys basically anymore because the consoles today are are very serious and i think the dreamcast was the last one with the exception of the nintendo and the wii uh, but the dreamcast was kind of the last console to to have a, like a light, a light approach to gaming because the playstation 2 when it came out it was super serious right it was Sony positioned the PlayStation 2 as a sexy console, basically. And it was, like, for adults and, and people who wanted serious gaming. And the Dreamcast, it, it has this kind of... Even the name, right? It has this this youthful approach, I think. At least the, 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 that's my impression that I got also from listening to you. I get this... It was a happy console. That, that That's my... Yeah. No, you're not wrong. I, I mean, the there I've read articles, interviews with members of the team and uh they all refer to it the you know the the way it was built the coloring that was chosen there is a lightheartedness to it that really only kind of existed again with the Wii when the PlayStation 2 came out it was sleek and futuristic and monolithic and kind of you know I don't want to say spooky because that's ridiculous, but it was in stark contrast mm-hmm. physically to the Dreamcast. The Dreamcast was kind of a squat little box that had, you know, edges, but they were rounded and everything was bright and happy. And there were certainly mature games that you could play on it, but the PlayStation 2 hardware was flat and black and very angular and very mature and this yeah like you said this is a serious console for serious gaming and you would find lighthearted experiences there too but the overall aesthetic of it was markedly different yeah so why why do you think the dreamcast failed i think well there are tons of actual market reasons why it failed the the most notable of which is that sega was hemorrhaging money and did not have the capital to go up against sony but there are there are other things about it, I think, that probably just contributed to that. I think you could probably trace its failure back before it even launched. I think Sega had squandered a lot of goodwill prior to that with, you know, the hardware stumbles that it had before. And so people, even as successful as it was, and it was wildly successful in this country when it launched, I think people were hesitant to really kind of go all in on it. 
And at that point, the PlayStation brand and the PlayStation name really had a lot of clout. So even through the Dreamcast's success through launch and, you know, that first, let's say, 8 to 12 months, people knew that the PlayStation 2 was coming. So when it launched about, you know, a little more than a year later, that was a very big deal. And it became apparent quickly that the Dreamcast was not going to be able to compete on the same scale, even though a lot of the games, you know, the, the PlayStation 2 launch titles, especially here, were not great. There were one or two that were okay. And there were a lot of great games to come, but the launch itself was not as strong as the Dreamcast launch. Certainly, the the breadth of gaming experience it took a while to get there, and the you know the PlayStation Two has a, a massive library now. But I think that the the install base for the Dreamcast just wasn't what it needed for Sega. They were losing money all along the way, but they were hoping to make it back. And it just wasn't the kind of thing that they could sustain for very much longer. And they had to make some tough decisions. And the tough decisions that they made resulted in, you know, the the stopping of hardware and moving to being a company that is a software-only company. And I remember when this happened in the early part of 2001, I already had a PlayStation 2 because I needed one as soon as it came out because I'm a sick, sick person. And... You know, I would play them both. I would go back and forth, and there were very different experiences on both. But when they said we're done with the Dreamcast, it was as though somebody just like shut off the lights. Because as soon as that happened, there were games that were released after that. But I think culturally, that sends a message like this is done. You're done. You know, don't even think about it anymore. And we see it now where. You know, we have services and and websites and apps and stuff that either shut down or get acquired and people cling to them. But it's just one of those things where as soon as you know there's really not a future, the the drop-off graph gets really steep really fast. And for somebody like me who was really into it, that meant that I began accumulating more stuff because as people got rid of it, the prices went down and I grew my collection. I looked at it like, well, I don't like this thing any less because they're going to stop making it. I like it maybe even more now because it's a special thing that held this place in my heart and time and I'm just going to continue enjoying it. So that's really when I started getting into heavily collecting more and more. Do you still play the Dreamcast uh, every once in a while? Yeah, I do. I I have it hooked up to my TV in the basement all the time. So I have a 360 down here that I really never play, but I also have the Dreamcast hooked up because it's probably one of only a handful of consoles that I like sitting down with and kind of just going through games once in a while. It's a bit truth be told, I also have one like sealed in a box and I have other stuff like sealed up. So I have like yeah, I have like the collection items and then I have, you know, I even have extra ones for parts and things like that because I just was able to get them over time. But yeah, I do I do like to play it from time to time. I have a pretty big collection of Japanese games too because that was another thing I got into as the system kind of waned. I would spend time on eBay and I'd pick up games for a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, things that I couldn't get here. And I was never into modding my systems because it just seemed like really a headache. So I found boot disks and things like that and ended up playing all kinds of cool titles from all over the world that I couldn't get. And some of them are not localized. So I had to kind of work my way through them in Japanese (laughs) and learn Japanese. (laughs) For a while, I was convinced that, you know what, maybe I should just learn Japanese because (laughs) I love anime and I love these games and this would be a great thing to do. But it's just a huge undertaking. But yeah, yeah, I think of it fondly. I I play it from time to time and it just makes me smile when I think about it because it's such a unique set of, you know, hardware and software. I... We have to have you back because, I mean, not only because this episode has been awesome, but I've been wanting to talk to Federico for for a, for a while about um, playing imported games and playing games that are not in your language. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that that would be a really good, If I think that would be really great for us all to talk about because I've never done it. So I'm, I'm really interested in that. Like, because with Federico, obviously he learned English that way and where you may have not learned like Japanese or anything, at least 
I can't even fathom how somebody can play through a game in a language they don't understand. So I think I'd be really interested to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I there were a couple games that I liked enough to fight my way through as much as I could, and then there were other things that I just thought. I'll see how the boot screen looks, and if I can't even figure out how to start, well, I'll just move on. <laughs> yeah, that's that's always the best uh, the best tip for me is to if you can figure out the start screen, you can probably play the game. Yeah, at least that was my uh, well. I used to play a lot of Japanese games on the Nintendo DS, and if I could get through the menu, uh, I, I was probably going to be fine. You guys are both amazing and crazy. <laughs> yeah. Also, money from your parents makes you buy weird stuff sometimes. (laughs) And I kind of regret that. (laughs) Seth, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on this episode uh, of Virtual. I really do hope that you'll you'll come back to join us again. Like, you are clearly a man who knows his video games. (laughs) Well, uh, thank you. It's been a distinct pleasure. I... I listen to you guys. I love, you know, hearing you talk because you guys both think about stuff in a very similar way to the way I do. And uh, I love the show. I'll, I'll come back anytime. Where can people find you on the internet if they would like to? Probably the best place is Twitter. I spend an inordinate amount of time there. Uh, you can find me. I'm at Seth Clifford. And if you want to check out some of the work my company does, you can visit nickelfish.com. We have some other interesting stuff coming later this year that I'm excited to announce, but we can't really talk about it yet. So I guess keep an eye out for that too. If you want to find the show notes for this week's episode, you can do so at relay.fm slash virtual slash four. My name is Mike Hurley. I'm at imike, I-M-Y-K-E, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Federico Vitici, who is V-I-T-I-C-C-I, and he is maxstories.net. That's where he writes fantastic things about Apple and and all sorts of related uh, technologies. If you uh, would like to listen live to the show, we do record the show live. Go to relay.fm slash schedule and you can find out all the information you need there. Thanks again to lynda.com and Igloo for sponsoring this week's episode of Virtual. We'll be back next time. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. Arrivederci.